17th and early 18th century, there was a huge explosion in sugar production. And the results of those sugar are two products. It's white sugar and there's molasses. And then somebody discovered you could distill this into rum. And at that point, molasses went from being a waste product to being an extremely valuable product in its own right. You know, rum is an extremely important beverage. At that time, water was, was not something you drank just straight. There's a very good possibility that it would be polluted. Guys, you were just listening to Dr. Emily Murphy. She's the park historian at the Salem Maritime National Historic Site. She joins us along with distiller Pete Newsom. You learn how to taste, you know, so because anything that you focus on, you're going to get. And Andrew Cabot, a privateer distillery. He was a merchant. Uh, he was a smuggler of molasses. He would purchase his molasses, have low tide deals, bring it back, make his rum. As we talk rum in America. Hey guys, my name's Mike Stojic, and this is Make It A Double, the podcast that talks booze, spirits, history, mixology, and the people and stories that make it great. And in this episode, we're taking you to school, but more specifically, it's a history lesson in rum and freedom. We talk privateering in the mid-1700s and how it helped facilitate smuggling molasses up and down the East Coast, from the Caribbean to Salem, Massachusetts, which inevitably gave rise to American-style rum. We're joined by Dr. Emily Murphy, park historian of the Salem Maritime National Historic Site. She provides historical perspective. And then we hear from Andrew Cabot, the founder of Privateer Distillery. Andrew's ancestor happens to be the original Andrew Cabot, a merchant, a rum distiller, and one of the most successful American privateers fighting against the British during the Revolutionary War. Andrew comes online and brings with him one of his distillers, Pete Newsom, who explains what it takes to master true American rum. So grab yourself a bottle of rum, maybe make a little rum punch, and enjoy the show. So so this, this is where we have to go back into the 1740s, 50s, and 60s, and even a little bit earlier. New England's economy in the 18th century is built on the slave trade. It's built on either supplying slaves to the West Indian plantations, or it is built on the supply of codfish and other food products also to the plantations in the Caribbean. Because... In the late 17th and early 18th century, there was a huge explosion in sugar production on those islands. Likewise, New England's economy expanded because they discovered that the codfish here was a really good protein source uh, for slaves on those plantations. And they didn't want to have to put land into cultivation for food that could be put into cultivation for uh, for sugar. And the results of those sugar plantations are two products. It's um, white sugar 
that we, or sugar that we now know of. And there's molasses. So molasses is basically what brown sugar is, sugar with the molasses still in it. When you heat the sugar cane and separate the sugar crystals from the molasses is when you get your final product of white sugar. Molasses for many years was kind of an you know, a throwaway product. Um, it was what was left over when the sugar, which was the high price uh, thing, was created. And then somebody discovered you could distill this into rum. And at that point, molasses went from being a waste product to being an extremely valuable product in its own right. And so, again, didn't want to spend a lot of space on the Caribbean plant plantation islands building distilleries. One of the big things that New Englanders would do would be to go down, get molasses, bring it back up here to New England, and then that would be distilled into rum. So there's West Indian rum and then there's New England rum. And uh, West Indian rum, in many ways, was considered the higher grade stuff. Um, so that was that was slightly more desirable. But New England rum was just as well regarded. Most of the merchants, the really, really wealthy merchants in these port communities owned their own distilleries. The problem becomes when the demand for New England rum throughout the Atlantic Basin, throughout the British, the British Atlantic world, exceeds the supply of rum that is being produced by the British Caribbean plantations. Fortunately, the French and the Dutch also had plantations in the Caribbean, and they were producing molasses as well. And so for many, many years, there was a lot of smuggling going on of molasses, basically because that was the only way that, as a merchant, you could make enough rum to sell. And so it was kind of winked at by the British authorities. And so what you do is you would go down to... The Caribbean and, you know, the French, the Dutch, the English, all they're owning all these islands. Of course, with any war in Europe, the ownership of islands is switching back and forth and, and things like that. So you would basically go down, you'd be, say, you know, heading into heading for one island that was that was owned by uh, the British and you would be, quote unquote, in distress and you would end up in a French in a French port because you were in distress and had to find shelter in the nearest port. And then, you know, molasses would appear on your vessel and quite handily, the French would mark everything in English and give you paperwork in English. So it looked like it came from an English port. And then you'd toddle off back to New England. And for many years, if you were caught doing this smuggling, you were tried by a jury of your peers in your hometown. And your peers were fellow merchants who were all smuggling as well. So pretty much <laughs> nobody ever actually got, you know, you might have to pay a fine or a slap on the wrist mm -hmm. or something like that. But then after the last of the French and Indian Wars in the 1760s, the parliament is looking for more, for more ways of creating revenue. And so they begin enforcing taxation that had already been in, that was e either enforcing taxation that had already been in place on molasses. And they began also enforcing against smuggling as well. And one of the things that, that they do is they actually move these vice admiralty courts from local courts to Halifax, Nova Scotia. So if you are caught smuggling, you have to go to Halifax, Nova Scotia to stand trial. And if you don't show up, you're automatically guilty. Jeez. So, so that, you know, people get kind of upset about that. 
Yeah, that's pretty bad. Uh, but I imagine there's problems in the Caribbean as well. So what sort of issues are going on down there? There are issues within the, the Caribbean islands of Royal Navy uh, vessels are not protecting American vessels against the French, and they're letting their own privateers stop American vessels and search them for smuggled molasses uh, as well. There's a wonderful letter that's written by Captain Richard Darby Sr., who's Elias Haskett Darby's father, where he he says, you know, these people are not pi- uh, privateers, they are pirates. So um, the Darbys particularly, they, they lose a couple of vessels this way that are, you know, that are taken by these privateers, and then they run them through the admiralty courts, and the, the admiralty court judges that, yes, this was a fair capture because the the vessel was carrying smuggled French molasses and therefore was aiding the enemy. And you know, Richard keeps writing to, you know, his lawyer and to folks. And he's like, this is ridiculous. This whole thing was corrupt. That that vessel was not carrying smuggled molasses. And, you know, and oh, by the way, I know the governor of, of that island. And he had he had no money when he went down there. And now he's worth, you know, a huge amount of money. And how did he get that? Um, so, you know, so there's this increasing, you know, frustration with corruption um, in the British government as well that that these that that the merchants here in in Massachusetts and uh, the rest of New England are dealing with. Wow. So so Cabot is one of those. So Andrew Cabot right. would be one of these merchants. He's one of these folks who is who's dealing with all of this. He's dealing with with this in, increasing paperwork. He's in, he's de- dealing with you know a feeling that the British government is not supporting um, his efforts to further the British economy, you know, and he's they're they're one of the ones that you know start to really buy into a lot of this rhetoric that is that's coming from what was then called the Whig Party about the fact that there is this corruption in the British in the British Parliament, and something needs to be done about this. And something was done about it. You don't have to be a history major to know that Americans were becoming more and more fed up with British rule. Soon the American Revolution would take place and men like Andrew Cabot and the Darbys would fight for America as privateers. Now, obviously this wasn't the only reason for the revolution, but it was certainly a contributing factor. Later in the episode, we'll hear from Andrew Cabot's great, 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 maybe another great grandson, also named Andrew Cabot, who's carrying on that legacy with privateer rum. But for now, Emily, if you don't mind, helping us understand the importance of alcohol, but more especially rum in America during that time. Yeah, rum is an extremely in, uh, extremely important beverage to New Englanders. So at that time water was was not something you drank just straight because it was in many ways so it, there's a very good possibility that it would be polluted. By the 18th century, Americans were able to do as they would have done in England and refused to drink water on the grounds that it might be unhealthy and was fit only for those who could not afford to drink anything better. Americans of this period believed it was healthier to consume tepid alcoholic drinks in hot weather than to refresh themselves with cold water, and the American drink of choice at this time was rum, not beer. So if you drank water, it was boiled with tea or coffee or chocolate, or it was boiled and 
things were added to it, like like barley, to make beer. So beer was sort of your base thing. Everybody drank beer, and they had mostly small beer, which would be two to three percent, two to three percent alcohol. So you boil the water to clear the impurities, and then you add alcohol, which maintain that purity. And so so the table beer would have been served to children. It was what you drank sort of as a as a daily on a daily basis. And then you could have uh, porter, ale. Um, those sorts of those sorts of things were what we think of now five to six percent the craft beer that we that we drink cider was if you were outside the port cities and you were in the agrarian areas like around concord massachusetts and places like that cider was what you drank i mean john adams is famous for absolutely loving abigail cider and writing to her from philadelphia that he misses her cider and so that's that that's fermented apple um, apple juice and then there's rum and rum is sort of is your entertainment drink it is mostly consumed as part of a punch. There are many, 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 many different versions of punch, but it boils down to five basic ingredients. So we have spice, that's the smallest amount that goes in. And, and you would even find punch bowls that would have concentric rings in them so that you would you would know you add spice up to this level, uh, and no then you kidding. add the sugar up to this level, huh. And then you add the citrus fruit, which could be oranges or lemons or something along those lines. And then you add the rum and then water. And again, you only drink water when it's mixed in. Something. <laughs> so, um, And so these punches, which there are still 18th century recipes for rum punch that still survive today. One of the most intriguing is a milk punch, which is actually, yeah, it has milk mixed into it and then it's strained and it's actually supposedly really really good uh benjamin franklin there's a copy that appears in benjamin franklin's papers or it would it would be something like a a toddy um which is a mixture that that's then heated with an iron so it's 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 almost always mixed into something and gin is less is drunk less gin is seen as it's especially in the 18th century, gin is seen as a, a lower class beverage. Um, there's a famous pair of illustrations by the British artist uh, Hogarth, who does its beer lane. And on beer lane, you can see everybody's just you know, successful and all the shops are, are open and, and people are, are fat and healthy. And <laughs> the only place that's closed is the pawnbrokers. Pawn and then contrast that with Gin Alley, where, you know, everybody's ill and thin and there's like this woman who's like dropped her baby in the gutter <laughs> and the only pl- and all the shops are closed and the only place that's successful is the pawnbroker um so so Why? so gin, <laughs> it just it's it's you know it's it's a fashion um you know it's like you know beverages go through fashion just yeah. as much as you know you know people don't drink that much jägermeister anymore you know it's it's, it's that you know it's that sort of thing mm-hmm. So you see gin being mixed into punch recipes, but you don't see it being you know, drunk straight that often. Hmm. So, um, so gin is it is coming in. You do see it in you know in advertisements and like the newspapers along with other beverages, but it's not it's not as popular. Um, that it becomes more popular later on into the 19th century. And then there's wine, which is the other thing that's coming in in huge quantities. Um, but just like today, that's it's 
it's a dinner drink. It's an after dinner yeah. drink. Certain types of wine were seen as having healthful qualities like port um, was actually seen as kind of a healthy beverage, which is really interesting now that, you know, the, all of these studies are coming out about the benefits of like red wine yeah. and things. Um, so that's, so those are the, that's the other big part of the, the drinking culture at that time. All right, guys, it's time for a quick break. There's a couple friends of mine who are doing some pretty neat things that I'd like you to know about. But after that, we're coming right back. I'm going to introduce you to Privateer Rum. As you already heard, Privateer is a distillery which has roots dating back to the Revolutionary War. So stay tuned. Guys, let me tell you about my friend, Malia Christie. She creates some incredible works of art. She's very talented. Just like the great street artist Banksy said, art should comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable, and that is what Malia sets out to do with Shaded and Faded. Shaded and Faded is unique. It's original. It all comes from the creative mind of Malia Christie. She specializes in figure, abstract, mixed-media canvas painting, and custom furniture creations. Check her out on Facebook. Search Shaded and Faded. While you're checking out Shaded and Faded, why not listen to Wait What If? Wait What If is a podcast hosted by another friend of mine, Kevin Sullivan. If you're interested in far out there things that make you stop and think, huh, wait, what if? Then check out Kevin's podcast, Wait What If, on iTunes and Stitcher or stream it from podbean.com. He explores things like what happens to the soul if you're teleported, observational reality, the Fermi paradox, and are ghosts real just to name a few. Check them out on Facebook. It's Wait What If. All right, guys, let's get back to the show with my friends at Privateer Distillery. It's a great backstory. We discovered it uh, doing some genealogical work. That's Andrew Cabot, owner of Privateer Distillery. As we just heard, Emily enlightened us in the ways of molasses smuggling, rum distilling, and privateering in the 1700s. Now, we'll hear from a descendant of one of the great privateers who makes rum in the same spirit as the revolutionary men of that time. I was working with my father on a small project, and we just kept running into... Oops, sorry about that. We kept running into good information on the family and getting past the portraiture of genealogy, how many sheep you own, things like that. And we moved into some of the, the richer story. And it was great. And uh, as I learned about Andrew Cabot, he uh, sailed out of Beverly, Massachusetts. He was a merchant. Uh, he was a smuggler of molasses. He would purchase his mass- molasses and off of the French islands in the Caribbean and have low tide deals, bring it back, make his rum. Uh, he was involved in a host of things, uh, cotton mills, bridge to Salem. And when he hit the privateering, which was at the beginning of the American Revolution, uh, he really uh, established quite a strong economic base. By the time the war was over, he had over 25 ships in a fleet that he had you know, partial or full ownership of. And did very well for himself. Andrew, your family history is really remarkable. It's a good start if you're opening a rum company. I'll give you that. <laughs> but it's, uh, I, I think every family has really interesting characters. And possibly the only irony of this is that uh, American history has a way of suppressing some of the stories that mm-hmm. they don't want to talk about. Privateering fits squarely in that. The people that made their money in privateering didn't really want to talk about where they made their money. Um, so he's probably not one of the heroes of the family in the grand, grand picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as you think about him through today's lens, where the world is 
know, we live much more in the gray. It doesn't matter if you're in hedge funds, or if you're a lawyer, whatever it is, you're living between the black and white. Um, it's a really interesting person to be talking about in uh, 2015. And I, I just really love this story from the beginning. So obviously there's the backstory for branding purposes, certainly important, but what else drove you to start rum making? And yes, I found a great brand. If I could describe the whole role of a privateering as a brand and, and a family connection and rum connection and the rest. To me, what was just as interesting was rum was a laggard category. And the theory of action was if we go after rum and rum making, uh, just in the same manner that you would go after making what I would consider some of the finest spirits, uh, what happens? Because yes, of course, there are amazing rums out there, but the majority of the market is targeting a lower bar. And we felt that was a great opportunity to enter into a space uh, in what I consider possibly one of the most interesting things I've done in my life, which is this alchemy, this process of taking a raw ingredient and trying to bring it as close to perfection as we can. So when I think about recipe developments, um, I think of this because I picture you digging through a big chest full of documents from the 1700s that your ancestor, the original Andrew Cabot, would have written. And then serendipitously, through thousands of documents, you pull the recipe for his rum. Um, um, I'm really hoping that's how this whole thing started. I went to recipes.com and just downloaded one. <laughs> 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 yeah, no, no, it, it's always experimentation and, yeah. and it never stops. One of the credo, and I think it's why, you know, none of us wanted a production job. We wanted a creative, interesting endeavor. And uh, Pete will tell you, and I'd love to get him on the mic, but mm -hmm. uh, we spend a lot of time thinking about how we can do things better. It's a regular part of our monthly conversation. Uh, ideas are always welcome. Uh, it's what makes this job great because right. we are trying to hit a bar that we don't even, we really don't even have a full picture of yet. Uh, which is a lot of fun, very that, creative. It's got to be exciting, not having, you know, not really knowing where the bar is, and you just keep going and going keep and going. going and pushing. That's that's awesome. That, and and we, it's funny when we started, it was it was completely violating the rules of spirits, which are all about consistency, quality in the in the in the traditional dimension is about repeatability, mm -hmm. and for us, it was always about nah, let's challenge that, let's go for better every time, and let's learn and let's uh, let's keep this work really fresh. And I, I couldn't have asked for two better people to walk in the door with Pete Maggie, and they just have made uh, everything I ever hoped to accomplish an absolute reality. Um, I'm Peter Newsom. Uh, I'm one of the distillers here at Privateer. I've done a number of things in the past. I kind of found my way in here by way of my wife, who's the head distiller. Um, and I've been here about three years. So you and your wife are both distillers. <laughs> that seems like a pretty solid match. How did you guys meet? You know, we we uh, became friends. Uh, we were both really interested in uh, me, probably more wine, uh, beer, and her more interested in wine. Uh, and we were both interested in spirits. And we would do things like, you know, tour distilleries together, breweries. Um, yeah, that's Seek awesome. Out new brew pubs, and that's kind of how we became friends and started dating. So how much influence, Pete, do you and Maggie have in developing recipes and, and changing? Huge. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. yeah. How do you, yeah. so how do you, how do you go about this process then? Cause I mean, I, I guess first, what, I guess what are the main ingredients in rum? And then, and then when it comes to shaping the different flavors and characteristics and making it unique, I, how do you take those uh, ingredients and do that? So the uh, the regulations stipulate that it just the the base materials just have to come from from the cane plant, 
Um, beyond that, it can be anything that you want. Um, in general, um, molasses is probably the, the most common uh, base material f uh, for rum. And among the people who use molasses, it's most common to use uh, blackstrap molasses. There is, there is some fine-tuning to that. Uh, for instance, uh, if you have an, an AOC uh, agricole-style rum, then it's, I believe, supposed to be made from the fresh pressings of cane. In, in our case, we use evaporated cane juice, um, so that's what they would use in an AOC agricole, but it's been evaporated to make it stable so that we can bring it here <clears throat> without any bacterial in infection. And then we also use uh, grade A or fancy molasses, uh, which is <clears throat> different in two ways from blackstrap. The first way is just that it has more sugar and less of, and more of the original plant essence and less of things like, like ash, phosphorus, other things that are naturally in molasses, but that aren't gonna be great for our fer fermentation and not necessarily great for your final product. Yeah, so I would say that that's a major differentiation that we'd, we don't use blackstrap molasses, which tends to lend to um, a funkier, more aggressive flavor, a lot of sulfur tones, uh, things that you might think of as like banana or, um, or a gasket is the most common descriptor, but, huh. um, but we, we use the, the fancy and the evaporated cane juice, as well as we also use uh, boiled brown sugar. Not, not the stuff that you buy in the store, but s stuff that's actually some of the molasses it, through the refining process is actually left in the sugar. Um, it's, it's, as opposed to most of the brown sugar you buy is, is actually just dyed. I'm guessing also the... Um aging process probably has a big piece of that too, doesn't it? In the Because I know I, we were talking earlier and I saw on the website, each barrel is very unique and different. So I'll go first, but I'd love Pete to answer to this uh -huh. too. I think uh, back to that, always pursuing the, the, the better. We encourage the barrels to run in slightly different directions. And yes, we'll coop, which Pete will talk about, but uh, we have a lot of single barrel releases that come out this year and next year um, because we really like seeing what's happening in each discrete barrel. Um, and just a word on cooping, the process of taking a number of barrels and, and bringing them together and then redistributing them to the same or slightly different barrels, uh, it's fascinating to me. Uh, same wood, same space, same everything. And three weeks later, they're starting to run in different directions again. Huh. And uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit more of the art than the science at that point. Uh, but we've decided to embrace it. We'd much prefer to have to change the designation on the label as far as the batch and put a little work on our hands and make sure we get the unique product to the, to the yeah, consumers. Yeah, great. I, it's so much yeah. better to have something a bit more unique, isn't it? Because if everything was the same always, it just loses its, I don't know, it's not fun anymore. <laughs> if you get the same thing every time, it's Anybody's not. Everybody's had kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. You char the inside of the barrels. Do you do that here? Do they come to you that way? How do you how do you build your barrels? Or do you? We receive the barrels. Okay. Uh, we buy both new and used. Uh, we prefer air-dried barrels uh, for the new ones. And we're very discriminating about the used barrels. And yes, of course, there's a note of a whiskey or something that comes in the barrels. But what we most care about is um, that it has a softer touch on the, on the spirit. And of course, the quality of the spirit that was in it before us, we don't want to introduce some of these impurities that we've worked all the way back to what Pete was describing on the ingredient, all the way through our process. We've worked very hard to get the best all the way through. 
Um, the last thing we want to do is, as part of the aging process, reintroduce something that's uh, unintended. So how do you how do you know that? I mean, I, I think obviously if you're getting a barrel from maybe a, a lower quality um, s- distillery, I mean that's one solid indicator. But if you're getting a barrel from maybe a, a, I guess a top shelf distillery but then they may have impurities. I mean, how do you know by looking at the barrel? Reputation's a big start. Uh-huh. And then Maggie and Pete will tell you that they'll open up every barrel and inspect it by hand. Yeah. And those, those hand touch points are what differentiates a, what I would say a true craft distillery uh, from those that are uh, purchasing and re- reselling spirits or um, perhaps the more industrial ones. It's just that process of knowing that what that 53 gallons that's gonna go into that barrel is uh, exactly what you want, and the barrel is exactly what you want it in. How long did that take for you to to get that skill set? Well, I'm like, I, man, that's like, like a lifetime of yeah, learning. Yeah, exactly. But you're I but th- you don't I, but you're not really that. You're not an old guy. So no. You're like a young guy. So well, it's like, how did you? That's because he's sitting next yeah. to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's there's um you know there's a there's a combination. Part you know you can uh you learn how to taste you know so because anything that you focus on you're going to get a little bit better at uh, and tasting probably more than anything i don't think we we necessarily live in a culture where like uh sort of subtle distinctions in flavor are like important so it is something that you have to consciously decide to learn um and i do it every day so there are things that taste completely different to me now than they did three years ago or or 10 years ago. The the barrels, uh, a lot of it is studying as well. The air drying that he mentioned, we were perceiving things in the barrels and then we, we started, well, we'd already been looking into the science, but uh, as we looked into the science, we found that it was basically confirming that there was a, there's a common practice in barrel manufacturing where they kiln dry the oak to get it to the right amount of drying. When we used those barrels, we found that they were slightly, I would, I would say that they were slightly more herbal or minty in how they smelled, as well as if we put spirit into them, we found that it came out a little bit more astringent. And so what we found was that barrels that are made from oak that has been air dried, there's so much that goes into it. But two of the big components are that they put the oak planks out outdoors and the uh, rain that falls on them actually will wash tannins out of the oak. And you can actually see black black marks uh, where the, the tannins are, are coming out of the, the oak. Uh, um, what, are, what are tannins? Uh, tannins are... Uh, <laughs> I think they're phenolic compounds, but they're organic What's compounds. What's phenolic? Like, <laughs> that I don't know. I just sound smart when I say phenolic. Yeah, I was um, impressed with that. I don't. They're basically components in organic matter, most notably oak and grapes, but also like tea. They tend to have a sort of texture. If you think of Italian wines, uh, which can be a little more rough on the palate those tend to have higher tannins and heavily oaked spirits can be rougher on the palate, but they can also be depending on this is such a complex topic, but uh, the, to make a complex issue simple, if the tannins are properly used, they can add vanilla, coconut, and sort of a richer, fuller mouthfeel. Yeah. It's, it's hard to, to answer exactly without going into too much detail, but, um, but at any rate, we were having uh, issues with how we were perceiving the, the oak's influence. 
And uh, yeah, and it was part of it is that the uh, the rain falling on the air dried oak actually removes some of the tannins from the barrel, so you get a softer influence on an air dried barrel. And then there's similarly the microorganisms will form on the the outdoor stored oak, and it will it will uh, actually break down some of those phenolic compounds and switch them from from one to another and, and give you less less of a uh, herbal quality and more of a vanillin quality. Yeah. No kidding. So when you want to, if you're, I don't know, adding different vanilla characteristics into your rum, is, is that something you go for or is, or is it more yeah, of a... Absolutely. Um, okay. But... But intentionally um, go for it. I mean, do you still add different flavorings? Oh, we add no flavorings. No flavorings. Yeah, every everything is uh, uh, just a combination of what comes off the still and uh, whatever and the, barrel. the barrel can add, as well oh, as wow. oxygen. But yeah, we do a an amber and a silver rum, and our our amber is, is aged. It's it's running about a, a year and a half these days. We're and we're constantly trying to push it older. It's aged in an oak cask, which gives it a color. But our silver rum, by contrast. We're aging three to four months, but we don't do it in an oak cask, so it doesn't get any color. But we, we age it in a... Um, aging isn't actually the legally accepted term, but it is, it is, much, uh, it is rested would probably be the most uh, appropriate term in a stainless steel vessel. So the stainless steel doesn't interact chemically with the rum at all, but oxygen is allowed to enter and the combination of the congeners, the flavor compounds with oxygen gives it a more robust mouthfeel. Rum is very different. I mean, a lot of the sort of white or silver rums out there actually are on wood and then they filter (laughs) the color back out. A lot of the dark rums are not aged. They've had color added to them. So particularly in this category, we started with the opening about how rum was sort of an unruly category with a lot of additive. Our belief is all those additives have a negative effect on the spirit. If you're trying to correct what you brought off the still with wood, with the intention of filtering it back to make it pleasing to the market, you've actually stripped out all the good flavors along with the bad. And so now you're relying on the mixers to carry the drink, be it a Coke or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. as opposed to... Uh, the spirit itself. We have a completely inverted understanding of this. We want to inspire the bartender with an ingredient and let them bring their magic to the table and take the spirit in places we that are beyond our expertise. And that's what I think Pete was talking about earlier about yeah. the joy of seeing somebody in the market who's just excited, putting you on the drink list and me sometimes going beyond and telling their customers, you've got to try this. I think our, you know, we don't use age statements on purpose. We really try and look at each barrel as what where is it? And it's a complete picture. In, in music, I'd say high, middle, and low notes. Is it, is it, does it have its, its, its song? And I think what we've always been careful to do is never over-represent um, the age of things. But it's interesting. It's another conflict with the marketing uh, where you see labels that just say, uh, I'm going to make up a number, 24 on the label. It has nothing to do with aging, but it's the marketing perception that if we can persuades you that it's really dark <laughs> and it has a double digit number um, we can put it on a different shelf and charge more for it and our, our view of this is absolutely the inverse uh, as the rum gets older it keeps the same label the whole brand lifts not the uh, adding a three three and a half four year right, right, right. <laughs> and so it's been a lot of fun to watch the market really embrace 
what's coming down the path as far as the age spirits. Cocktails have become very popular and people are thinking very critically about them. And part of that has been a resurgence in interest in tiki cocktails, uh, which is great for a rum producer. But I also just think it's it's just kind of great in general. Um, there had been these people kind of notably uh, Brother Cleave and uh, Jeff Berry. They were interested in this era of tiki fashion and tiki uh, drinks and uh, the tiki bars. And they, uh, along with tiki culture, came this idea of like mahalo, uh, where it was like very welcoming. Um, and so you're, you're seeing a lot of that stuff. Uh, uh, people like Jeff Berry and Brother Cleave, these guys go back, you know, 20 years uh, researching tiki. Uh, and now it's kind of reaping, reaping its rewards. And, and uh, there's, there's also uh, people who are very interested in uh, keeping a, the Caribbean tradition alive. Uh, there's, there's people who are very interested in things like Dunder Pits. There's all these different sort of strands that are coming together in the rum market that are really fascinating. And, and, uh, and it's fun to see uh, the people who, who really care about their craft really actually doing well, I think. I'm going to take that same point and focus out a little bit. I mean, it's fair to say that a lot of the, the resurgence in, in, in cocktails and craft cocktails came around about sort of a nostalgia over prohibition. So that really started, and it's very common in food uh, evolution, to kind of conjoin the notion of a nostalgia. In case he's talking about tiki here, I'm talking about something that to a degree preceded it in this latest wave. Um, but there's usually an economic piece too. Uh, so Nouvelle Cuisine was all about uh, referencing banqueting, like the king's table. And at the same time, it was all about, well, we don't have to have as much wait staff if we plate in the kitchen. Uh, the economic element. And the same thing with the restaurants. They've known for 30 years that their money is made on you know, beer, wine, spirits. Uh, why haven't we been investing in the cocktail program uh, for as long as we've known this? And so the, there's always these funny little uh, things that have to come together. And we, were, we benefited from the first, the prohibition, and now we're benefiting from tiki. But the point I really heard Pete say, which I like so much, is it's really cocktails. These are just vehicles to get them into the, into the conversation. Now it's about what amazingly cool things can you do with these ingredients. And, and that goes back to the professionals in the field. We've been very uh, lucky with our proximity to Boston. There's a, a lot of great bartending talent in Boston. Oh. So Pete, what can you tell us about the different styles of rum and then how you guys fit in? Well, it's, most of it's categorized by uh, where it's made, although that can be deceptive. Um, it's, uh, you know, you've got, for instance, uh, uh, this may be changing, but it's typically been illegal to have Cuban rum in America. But you have Matasalam and, and Bacardi who like to, you know, claim their Cuban heritage. So you, you have a, a diversity of, of places like Jamaican rum is typically seen as having more gasket notes if you think of for instance smith and cross is the, always the one that comes to mind and then cuban rum is tend to, to be a little more elegant that would be havana club matasalam bacardi and puerto rican i personally find to be pretty fiery <laughs> <laughs> and then there's you know every island in the caribbean basically has their own style we're a little different than that 
we kind of started out of nowhere. Uh, we definitely had the historical background, but we, we wanted to do it what we thought that was the best way. I, so it's a bit more geographical than for different categories? Yeah. I, there is, because there is the agricole ca- category. French, uh, or formerly French? Uh, Martinique, at any, at any rate. Martinique, they had the style agricole that was associated with them, made from fresh sugarcane pressing. And it had this more kind of juicy, or organic kind of quality. And the, the French have this, I, I love it, uh, this system called the, I, I, I can't say it correctly, but it, it's abbreviated AOC. It's like Appellation of Origin Controlled uh, in French. But, um, and it's, it's, it's a sort of industry set of rules that are basically outside the government. And they're sort of self-regulated, although the, the government they are able to get people actually put in prison if they don't follow the rules. But if you have uh, an AOC rum, agricole rum, then there's actually rules that you have to follow. That And so that is that is one of the specific categories that I was familiar with. And I think maybe most people are is um, dark, silver, spiced, and coconut. <laughs> like yeah. that's, how I, yeah. that's how I always knew how to break it down. But yeah. uh, So now that seems pretty stupid because you, like, yeah. you just really well, broke it down way more. The, like, the, it's incredible. There's the, way more character. Yeah. The uh, spiced and the coconut thing was uh, kind of a post-World War II thing. Uh-huh. Uh, rum didn't have a, a great reputation. And a lot of times they... I don't, I don't want to say this is broadly true of all spiced and coconut rum. And frankly, I haven't tasted through a lot of it because it's not my favorite types of rum. But um, in general, it was kind of a way to hide lower quality rum. That makes sense. You just throw a bunch of sweeteners and flavors at it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The there are there are like local traditions of, like for instance, if you think of Bay Rum Cologne, um, like Old Spice aftershave. The reason they call it Old Spice is like it was. Um, I believe it was originally a type of rum <laughs> that they would put like cinnamon. It smelled better than it tasted. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it, would, it would be like cinnamon and patchouli and like all these things and uh yeah exactly smelled better than it tasted people would put it behind their ears and um and eventually it became a type of cologne (laughs) that's amazing i love it (laughs) and and there there are like on all these islands they have these local traditions where they'll um they'll put cinnamon bark in in it and let it sit on the shelf or you know sometimes you can walk into a convenience store and they'll have like uh their little special thing and Privateer Distillery is well-recognized and awarded, and I know from talking with you both that it's more than that. So as we close out the show, uh, please share some of your thoughts. It's funny. Yeah. The medals and the and things like that are always fun, but the best, and Pete, I'd love to hear your thoughts, yeah. but the best experience is when you take it to somebody whose opinion you respect. It could be a yeah. mentor. It could be uh, an industry figure who really has no business around handing out medals. Um, and they tell you what you've done, and that is a thousand times more satisfying than, That's great. Uh, yeah. than anything yeah. else. Yeah, you definitely, um, when you talk to people, you, you develop this sort of sense uh, about, you know, who knows what they're talking about, and, uh, and also among those who, who will tell you what they think, um, uh, uh, you know, regardless of whether it's good or bad. Um, and yeah, little, definitely, little is good. Uh, like, yeah, the, we when we walk into a restaurant that we know uh, only stocks what they consider to be the best, uh, 
and you see it on the the back bar, you know that like yeah, it's it's a huge compliment. It's really personally affecting. It's a family business. I mean, it's yeah. the only way to think of it. You exactly. really uh, exactly. we talk about all this knowledge transfer and what people bring to the table every day to, to, when they come to work, and it's uh, it's a it's a it's a very unusual culture. All right, guys, that's the sound of last call. I really hope you enjoyed the show. I want to send a special thank you to Dr. Emily Murphy of the Salem Maritime National Historic Site. When visiting Salem and all the witch trial history that goes along with it, be sure to visit Emily and look into the rich maritime history as well. And did you know that during the times of the revolution, it was one of America's largest ports serving many great privateers? Also, thank you to Andrew and Pete of Privateer Distillery, makers of true American rum, where there is no good enough, no compromises, and no shortcuts. A rum that holds true to the spirit that gave birth to America, a spirit that demands doing what you believe is right, doing it well, and doing it your own way even if it means defying convention. Check out Privateer online at privateerrum.com. Also, don't forget to go to doublepodcast.com to check out show notes, view photos from my interviews, find more information on all of my guests, and links to each of their websites. I'm also on Facebook. Check out Make It A Double Podcast on Facebook. Give it a like. It's the best way to get current info on shows and guests. If you have any comments or show ideas, please reach out. I'm always happy to hear from our listeners. I really hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, cheers. Yeah, you see us on a on a good day, you know, we're we're not covered in sticky wash or <laughs> things aren't breaking. No, even better, we're sitting here talking while Dylan's doing the work. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, keep working, Dylan. <laughs> That's awesome.